Welcome to Becoming Church, the podcast where we discuss how the message and movement of Jesus is not just about becoming Christians, but about becoming the church. I'm your host, Kristen Mockler-Young, and I'm so glad you are joining the conversation. Welcome back to the Becoming Church podcast. This is your host, Kristen, and I am here today with Mariko Clark. Hello. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to chat with you. Awesome. So we are going to talk today about uh, the Bible and the Bibles, especially in relation to children Mm -hmm. and the new Bible that you've basically created and written on your own called the Book of Belonging. Yes. Yeah. I have a story Bible for kids. I feel like that is important. Some of the criticism we've gotten was saying, you can't add to the Bible. And we're like, no, 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 that's, that's not what we're doing. It's a story yes. Bible for kids. Um, definitely not trying to add to scripture. Yeah. So what inspired this? Cause I know that there are other storybook Bibles. There are other sure. kids Bibles. Yeah. So what inspired the book of belonging? There's lots of them out there um, and we own a few of them. Um, but what, what sort of started the whole thing a few summers ago Um, my daughter and I I have three kids and my oldest at the time was like five. Um, And she was telling me um, just about the story she had been reading in our Bible. And then sort of out of nowhere, she goes, mom, does God love boys more than girls? And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) where does that come from? Where did you get that idea? I raised you better than that. You're Um, like, who who were you listening to? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And she's like, you know, in her little five-year-old deductive reasoning, she's like, well, you know, in my, in the Bible that you guys read us, there's only two girl stories and the rest are boy stories. So, you know, that's the conclusion she had come to. I'm like, there's no way that's true. (laughs) So I get, I'm trying to think I'm like Mary Mm -hmm. and, and Ruth. Esther. The other one in her, in her Bible, at least was Rachel and Leah. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and those were the two. Um, and I'm like, there's no way. So I go home and I flip through and sure enough, um, there's only two female centric stories in her Bible. I'm like, that's weird. And like I said, we have a couple other ones. I started flipping through those and it's like, once I started seeing it, I couldn't stop seeing it. Um, that female characters, are vastly underrepresented, not just in the stories, but even in the illustrations. Cause I think, you know, someone would argue, well, you know, the Bible's a lot about Jesus. So of course, a lot of the stories are going to be about a man, but um, we know that Jesus had female disciples and that there certainly were women in the crowds at any sort of gathering that would be listening to him. And that's just not um, depicted in most of these story Bibles in the illustrations even, which was frustrating to me because I have two younger kids who they don't read, but they'll sit there and look through the pictures. So this, the story of God that they're ingesting is through imagery and what they're seeing, the story that those pictures are telling them is that, um, God's family is, um, a a white man (laughs) surrounded by other white men and like that's the extent of it. Um, and that was, that was really sad and frustrating to me because I've had beautiful experiences in church and certainly haven't experienced a lot of, you know, the misogyny that we know is out there. Um, so that really grieved me knowing that my kids would be ingesting that even just, um, sort of subconsciously or, um, inadvertently. Um, so that's, that sort of got me started on this journey of, um, okay, well then I, I want to find a story Bible that, that does more of this. Um, 
so I started searching around and looking at all of the the products that are on the market um, and had a had a tough time finding what I was looking for. And it was one of those things where once I started pulling at the thread, I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to be looking for more girl stories, then I'd like to see a brown Jesus. Well, yeah. while I'm looking for that, I might as well see if I can find, um, you know, more stories um, that are, or stories that are less about morality and more about identity. Like some of these story bibles lean pretty heavily on sort of like the, the the fairy tale tradition of like wrapping up each story with like a and here's the moral of the story here's how to be here's your person. to do yes mm-hmm. yep which i think it has its place as far as application goes but i think it, it goes awry sometimes in these story bibles um because kids are so literal um i'm getting a little off topic but um, no it's okay kids are so literal that i think um we have this 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 great um, intention to instruct them. Um, but I think sometimes when we make the, the point of a Bible story, um, the, the morality or the, the to-do, like you said, right. then kids, some, at least my kids, start to believe that, that God loves them because of what they do and not who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the natural way to, to ease that sort of anxiety for a kid is just behavior modification. They just start to act in different ways. And, and we know that has no real impact on their heart um, yeah, or at least lasting impact. Um, and then I think a, a lot of us experience that as kids and then we're bound up in this, this moral hierarchy. And then as adults, like that really doesn't hold for us. It's not right. lasting or sustainable. Well, I'd say I, I agree with everything you're saying because yeah. that's how I grew up. And it wasn't yeah. that my parents purposely instilled that, mm-hmm. but in my own interpretation in through Sunday school and youth group and all the things, yes, it was very much walking away with any Bible story or any lesson. It really was okay. And here's now what you do, because mm-hmm. that's what, you know, Jesus did, or Jesus's friends did, or the disciples yeah. did. And yeah, when you find that you mess up then. Yeah. Like we all do because yeah. we all make mistakes and none of us yeah. can live up to this. You're right. I have then gone into my adult life going, I have to do better. I have to be better. Mm-hmm. I have to perform for mm-hmm. God to love me. And even though I know that that's not actually true, yeah, that is, that does become our identity. That does become yeah. when there is not a, a identity piece to match with that, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of takes on, on both. Yeah. And it's tricky because those things that we pick up as kids are so foundational that, yeah, even as adults, when we do sort of take that apart and figure out, you know, what we really do believe or we, we have a, um, like a more mature understanding of how it works. Those other, those things are so embedded in us from, from yeah. the time where we, we don't even have language for it, that it's, that I think is what scared me as a parent was like knowing how kids' brains develop and being like, shoot, this is going to stick with them. I'll, I want to make sure that what's sticking with them is something that you know, will grow with them that is flexible and sustainable and life-giving. So yeah. Um, well, kudos to you how- for trying to figure out, doing the hard work of figuring out how to teach them differently so that they're not then adults who are having to do the hard work of unlearning mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah. then try to relearn anyway, like so many of us are. So many of us are. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you that a lot of times it's not that our parents necessarily went out of their way <laughs> to instruct us poorly or to, to put right. these, these ideas in our head, but it's, it's what we pick up, um, you know, re- even reading between the lines as kids. And, and that is really tricky. Yeah. I love that you talked about the illustrations even mm-hmm. because 
I mean, as parents, we're told like, read to your babies, mm-hmm. you know, so they are taking in these visuals yeah. from like one. Yeah. Yeah. How have they, you, and- how have you used or molded the illustrations? Um, so I'm not the illustrator. I'm working with a good friend of mine. Um, her name's Rachel Eleanor. She's an incredible artist. Um, and Rachel and I work really closely, um, collaboratively. She, she speaks a lot into my writing and I, um, I speak into her illustrations. Um, and she is so brilliant. I think what she's done a really good job. Um, I think she's done two things. So we, um, so the lack of female centric stories, it's not the only issue that we were seeking to address, but it certainly is what sort of started that ball rolling. Um, but in, in my process, I can, as I continue to be curious about kids' Bible resources, um, I started to notice these other choices that were being made, especially in the illustrations, things like um, skin color, ability, age, um, body shape and size. Um, oh, yeah. And, and I started asking, you know, what, what, what biases, either conscious or unconscious, am I passing down to my kids through these edits that these other illustrators are making? And I think Rachel does an incredible job of being really, really intentional. Even before she started illustrating for me, if you go back through her previous artwork, she's got all kinds of body shapes and sizes and abilities and and skin tones. But I think the other thing she does really well is she's really... um, whimsical and fantastical with her illustrations and that was something I was so excited to introduce into the concept of a kid's bible that um, in one of our sample stories that you can read on our website um, about Jesus calling his disciples um, we were talking about how in so many of the kids bibles that are out there um, you get to the New Testament and almost every every story has a really similar illustration of Jesus standing the dudes around him sort of in this like dynamic or like sort of static posture. Um, and I told Rachel, I just like, I don't feel inspired by that. And I wouldn't be surprised if kids didn't. There's so, so much of what Jesus is doing, telling these parables is it's really imaginative and beautiful. He was a storyteller. Um, but then we end up with these images in the, in the Bible of just like people standing around. Um, right. so I was and they all like, really look the same. Like, and they all, all the disciples the are a copy and paste, but like this one has longer brown hair and this one yes. has shorter brown hair and this one has a beard but yeah, yeah like really but Jesus, all is, carbon Jesus is like the hottest one out of them yeah. like he, he happens to be cuter um, yes he's I've like shining that. a little bit yeah exactly his hair is a little smoother um yeah. but Rachel did a really good job of um we we tried to think about like how can we convey these really beautiful concepts in um a more imaginative way. So as far as like Jesus calling the 12 disciples in this story that I'm talking about, Rachel did this really cool thing. She has them in one of the illustrations riding on fish because it's the story about fishing for men. Um, And she says, you know, when Jesus says like, you'll become fishers of men. And certainly they were fishers of women as well. So she has this illustration that kind of goes across the whole page of this school of fish. And then the disciples, male and female riding on these fish. And it just she has done that throughout the book. And I think it's so important because I think it gives our kids these, these spaces to, to pour their wonder and their imagination into. And I think that's what 
that's why Jesus told parables was that he would be asked this really direct question. He would tell this sort of like evasive, vague story for people to sort of pour their understanding into. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's sort of like the, the mini or like the kid version of that was this, these images that she does, I think a really, really wonderful job of um, sort of pulling back on the, the literal I love that. I mean, that is going, kids are naturally curious. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like this is going to allow and, and make room for that. And curiosity Mm -hmm. is a good thing. I think a lot of times people want to separate that from scripture and be like, Nope, here's the answer. And this is what it is. But really, if they're curious about it, they're going to want to know more about it. They're going to want to know more about the story and about who Jesus Mm -hmm. is. And then we're teaching them to think. Yeah. Yeah. And we're teaching them to ask questions. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that um, that is the natural outcome of curiosity. What you're saying is like, we're teaching them to think and ask questions. We're teaching them to um, think critically. Um, but I think that curiosity can be really scary for people who don't necessarily understand it or um, have it themselves. Yeah. Um, it can feel like, well, curiosity equals doubts. Curiosity equals walking away from tradition. Um, and, and that can feel really scary for some people. But um, I think especially for kids, it's so important for us to foster that. Um, My friend, Sarah, I don't know if you're friends with Sarah Schwarzenruber. Um, Anyways, she- um, I'll find her. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) she's awesome. She's a pastor at a church um, out in Portland, Cascade, and she has a lot of resources for parents, but um, she's done a lot of um, academia level study on on kids' resources and um, sort of the- the sustainability of um, kids' faith and how, um, what the difference is between kids who after, you know, they graduate from kids' ministry of some sort, what's the difference between kids who who still are interested in the Bible and who still would um, identify as some, a person of faith? And what's the difference between kids who grow up and they want nothing to do with it? Um, and she, I mean, she tells it so, so much more intelligently, but, um, <laughs> For the first, I think it's the first 10 years, she said the most important thing you can do for a kid if you want them to have a lifelong faith is to foster curiosity. Like that is the one, the one thing. And when she told me that, I was like, yes, that is exactly like that's been my instinct as a parent. And that's what I've seen with my kids that the more, um, you know, flexibility I give them and the more wonder I make available to them, there is more interest. And that makes sense, right? Because every other resource they have is shoving them towards imagination and wonder. Yeah. Um, and so for us to take Bible resources and be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is for study only. I mean, that's not going to foster any sort of interest or engagement on their part. Yeah. And it just, it makes it like school, uh-huh. you know, yeah. which a lot of kids like school, but then they're in school all day long and they probably need a break from it. And I think even sometimes in education, I was a teacher for a long time, so I can oh, yeah. speak into this a little bit, I get it. but there is a difference in, you know, the classes where you're just having to learn like facts. Mm-hmm. And so are we presenting the Bible of just here's scriptures to memorize and things mm-hmm. that you need to know about Jesus or yeah. the Israelites, or are we inviting them in Yeah, yeah. to the story? You and mentioned, I, 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 oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think you're right. And I think that um, we're sort of setting them up for failure if it does become sort of like a, a memorization, here's the facts thing, because we know as adults that there isn't always a cut and dried answer for every question that we have about scripture or about God. Um, 
And so we're, we're setting our kids up to sort of like be let down by their faith. If we, every time they have a question, we have a sort of a readily packaged answer with a bow on top of it, because that's not how life works. And that's not how God works in a wonderful way. Like how disheartening would it be if God fit inside of my six-year-old's mind, if she was like, got it, like (laughs) what kind of God would that be to worship if my six-year-old had a full concept of how she figured him out. Yeah. Yeah, That would be like, that wouldn't be worth any of my investment. So I think that, um, yeah, curiosity and wonder. And when we, um, it can feel really scary when our kids come to us with questions and we're like, I don't know. And sometimes it's like, I haven't studied enough or like, I kind of together, look it up together. Or like, I kind of forget, but sometimes it's these, these, I don't know where you're like, I don't know, like lots of people debate about this. Lots of people, Meredith Miller, my friend says, like lots of people who love Jesus feel differently about this. And I think that's such a good line. But then there's the, I don't know is where you're like, I don't know, because literally no human has ever been able to figure it out. And isn't that so wonderful? Isn't that so um, worthy of our worship? This thing that like none of us have been able to figure out and that doesn't have to be so scary. And I think we can model, wonder in a really joyous way for our kids so that it doesn't have to lead to fear which is I think what we see with some leaders where it's like I don't know and that's so scary we've got to nail this down yeah Um, and then you know our kids grow up to be adults who are like but I don't want to nail it down so I guess I don't belong in this community of faith if I can't so or I can't nail it down and so therefore I failed I think we connect like knowledge with performance oh for sure and going okay well if you know the thing then you're doing it right yeah you know we've we've got this idea that if you don't know you've somehow failed or you're not good enough or you're not smart enough Mm -hmm. and so yeah like you said even just teaching our kids that I don't know can be a good thing yeah, and that we may never know, but that it's not bad. And it doesn't mean that we're not smart enough to figure it out. Maybe we're just not yeah. meant to know. And it's the process that is the good part about it. Yes. I love that. Um, so you talked about instilling wonder and contemplation, like a little mm-hmm. bit through the illustrations. Do you do that at all? Like I'm assuming in the story with the words and the text, talk to us about that. Yeah. That's something that was really important to me to build into the book, I have a, I have a background in um, educational publishing. And so um, this word pedagogy that I feel like I've used uh-huh. in interviews before people are like, what does that mean? You're a teacher, you get it. So yeah. <laughs> we wanted to build some pedagogy into it, which is really just like learning resources. Um, yes. And it, it was really important for me to build in some pedagogy about wonder um, in really along the lines of what we were just talking about of giving parents a, a place to put their, I don't knows. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some of the, one of our sample stories, actually the five fearless sisters, um, that again, you can read on the website. Um, it's, it, it's from the old Testament and it's, there's this moment in the story where Moses goes and talks to God. He sort of consults with God about the, this, um, trial that's sort of going on for this, these five sisters, Um, and then he comes back and is like, oh, God says this. Um, and so we have this wonder, what we call a wonder moment at the end of that story, which is just sort of this little lockup that just creates space for, I don't know. So it says, you know, in the story, God, Moses talks to God, um, and, and throughout Moses's story, it says that Moses talked to God face-to-face as a man speaks to a friend. What do you think that was like? What do you think that God sounded like? What do you think Moses saw? What do you think he felt? And to sort of just give them this space of, you know, my kids have asked me like, 
what is it? What do you mean, God? What does God sound like? What is that? Like we hear that in stories, like that God spoke to these people. And I think, yeah, I, I've told my kids, like, I think it's different for every person, but like, I'm like, I don't know, kid. Like, <laughs> I can tell you what it's like for me, but it maybe it's different for you. And like, who right. knows what it was like for Moses? And that can re- feel really scary. So we sort of have built it into the story for parents to be like, what do you think? And to just like put it in our kids' hands and like think about it, like use your imagination, sit with that. And like, we don't have to come up with an answer together. We could just sit yeah. in that that question and mystery and we can sort of engage with the mystery in a way that is worshipful and intentional um, instead of sort of shying away from it or trying to like hammer it down with an answer. So that's sort of like the wonder moment. The other lockup we've done is um, contemplative or we, we are calling mindful moments. Um, and that's just this idea. Um, I have, have found meditation and mindfulness to be a really important tool in my um my faith journey over the past few years um and I have found it as most helpful um in situations where I've got a lot of head knowledge and I think a lot of us who grew up in the church have that where it's like we've got it all kind of locked up here and it's it's difficult to engage with especially in in difficult or like grieving or confusing seasons it's difficult to engage in our heart um, and I have found a, a more meditative, mindful space, a really um, life-giving way to sort of connect my head and my heart. Um, and I know that in, I guess what you would call like the secular world, that is, that's picking up ground, that mindfulness and meditation is like sort yeah. of a big movement. And I think that, you know, that we're onto something that we live in such a, pa- a fast-paced world there's so much noise. There's so much going on. Our kids rarely have a moment to even just sit by themselves um, or be quiet. And the sort of the, you know, if we look at um, Jesus as a model of like, what, where did Jesus go when he was feeling overwhelmed or when he was, you know, looking to engage his knowledge and his heart? And it's like, he went off to the wilderness or he went, he went away to a quiet place. He withdrew. Um, and how can we give our kids permission and sort of a model for what that looks like for them. How do we pull them into like the three tenets of contemplative practices is solitude, silence, and stillness. How do we create practices for them to have solitude or silence? Like silence is so rare for our kids these days or yeah. to just like allow them to be still. And I think those are the, the sort of the really holy moments where, um, you know, they're sitting with these questions or with this mystery or like they're having encounters with the Holy Spirit. Like if we don't carve out those spaces, I worry for my kids that if I don't carve them out, that they won't encounter them organically, just with the pace of our world. Um, and so we've locked that up at a couple of the, in some of the stories at the end, we'll have this mindful moment where it, um, we have one that I really love. It's um, with a cup of tea. So you get yourself a little hot drink, like hot chocolate or tea. Um, and you sort of walk these kids through, um, you know, hold it with one hand and feel how that feels different from your other hand. Sort mm. of this like, bodily engagement now now hold your other hand with the hot hand how does that feel you know put your face over the cup and feel the steam so it's like sort of drawing them into their body um and then as you're you're sipping your drink think back over the day and it's sort of this modified um examine practice which is an ignatian practice of like think back over your day well where was the moment where you you felt like god was close to you or where you noticed um the fruit of the spirit. Cause I feel like sometimes that's easier for kids instead of being like, where was God there? You're like, where did you feel love? Where did you feel yeah. peace? Where was their gentleness? Um, and have them 
And then, you know, think back over the day and like, where's the moment that felt really difficult where you felt like sort of alone and like, what did that feel like? Um, and then, you know, this is a, a contemplative moment that we put at the end of the story of Esther, um, because I found this out writing this story that Esther's the only um, book of the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned at all. Um, wow. And so when I started writing it, I'm like, shoot, how am I going to do, how am I going to justify putting this in my Bible? Um, and I ended up reading a, a Jewish rabbi, one of his um, commentaries talking about like um, that the reason he thinks it was written that way was it was written when the, when the Jews, this is such like a nerdy take on it. It was like such a rabbit trail, but it was written when the Jewish people were in exile um, and they were likely, you know, feeling very similar to how Esther felt like a foreigner yeah. in a foreign land, um, wondering like, where is God in our experience? Like, it really doesn't feel like God's with us. It feels like kind of like God abandoned us. Um, and so this rabbi thinks that it was supposed to mirror their experience that like at, at a surface reading of Esther, God's not present. But then you go back and you look in all the nooks and the crannies and you see the peace and you see the love and you see the gentleness and you have to go searching for God in the story. And, you know, that's sort of the message we can take away from Esther is like, there's days where we can look back and be like, God wasn't with me. I felt totally abandoned. Yeah. And the message of Esther that we can take away is like, well, what if we look back over it? Um, where was God in like, you know, the nooks and the crannies? Where was God when we, when we go searching for him? And sometimes the search is really what brings us as close to God or brings us sort of back in communion is like through the act of searching, like right. we, we engage. Um, and that's, that's where the beauty sort of comes out. Anyways, that's one of the um, sort of mindful moments we have locked up for kids. That is Mariko. That is so beautiful. And I mean, and it, it really is something that I'm a very busy person. Um, and I try to monitor that for my kids. Like I try yeah. to put you know, boundaries in place of like, like for our family, we don't yeah. do sports and activities on the weekend mm -hmm. because like, I'm a pastor. I work on Sundays. Saturday yeah. is our only day yeah. that we don't have something. Now we also have the birthday parties and we have the family oh, dinners sure. and like it never ends. You know, yeah. the things that pop up, but I'm like that, that is a place that I can kind of protect one day for our family. But even if it's, you were thinking, I just kind of, I don't know if convicted is the right word, but I was just reminded that like, no, I need to also teach my kids to be silent. I need to teach my kids to pause because they're not going to learn that yeah. in our lives. Or even I know from watching me, I'm, I'm a consumer. So I'm constantly listening to a podcast or music or something. And I could model how simple it would be for me to model doing the dishes in silence. Mm, yeah. I probably wouldn't even have to tell them what I would do. They would come in and be like, why is it so quiet? In here? <laughs> yeah. And that yes. could lead to the discussion, you know, but it really, it truly is. We have to think of all of these practices as something that we need to teach our kids. Cause they're yeah. not, we can't assume that they're just going to, just going to know, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm right there with you. So you mentioned a little bit how engaging, you know, is how we come back to God, like digging yeah. in is how we come back to God. I feel like when a lot of people, and I'm speaking mostly adults, but start to dig in, maybe they're going through a deconstruction or an unlearning or a relearning. Did you feel like you had that experience yourself as you started to create the book of belonging and kind of dig in? Did I have a deconstructive experience? Yeah. Or just like a, 
like an unlearning. Um, like I think a lot of people, when they start to, to dig in, it, they, they want to pull away. I see. Yeah. And it sounds like it, it drew you in. And so I'm yeah. wondering if you have some encouragement for people that maybe turn away in frustration Yeah. instead of yeah. allow it to pull them back. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, some of it is just like a personality thing that, um, I think that I'm someone that when I am confused by something or when I am, um, intrigued or, um, want to fix something that is, that is my nature is to sort of just dive in head first and to not give up until I've got it sorted. Um, but I know that there, I have other friends who are like, I just need to walk away and take a moment. Like, that's how they deal with something. Um, so I feel like when it comes to deconstruction, sometimes I feel like I've seen out there this sort of, it's taken on sort of a negative connotation in certain circles that people are like, well, you can't just walk away, but it's like, that's how some people deal with conflict. That's how they sort through, um, and, and, and find what really matters. And it ends up being this really beautiful process. Like, I mean, like we were just talking about, like, that's what Jesus did, right? Like, yeah. I'm not saying Jesus deconstructed, I mean, probably, but, um, <laughs> probably that he, he, with, he withdrew to a quiet place to sort through, um, yeah. you know, and, and find the, the truth at the core of, you know, the story. And I think that um, I have friends who maybe on a surface level, it looks like they've quote unquote walked away from faith. And so I would say to answer your question for people who are sort of struggling with that, like I would say, um, trust the story and trust that, um, trust the way that God has put you together. That if, if, if your intention is, is to find meaning and to find truth and to find, um, the way of the kingdom, then, then God goes with you no matter where you are, if you're walking away, quote unquote, or if you're like withdrawing to the wilderness, you're not leaving God. God's God goes with you. You might leave church, but that's a different story. And the two things are not the same. Um, but I would say, um, trust that God goes with you and, and continue to do that good work. Um, whether it, and I, I feel like, man, people are so different. They just have different ways of learning as well. Like for me, it's been like, you should see my desk right now. I have about 15 books stacked up. <laughs> um, and that's how, that's how I learn. And that's how I sort through confusion. But I know there's some people who are like, I'm going to go fishing, right? Like that's how yeah. I'm going to sort through all this stuff in my head. I'm just going to take a fishing trip or like, I'm going to go for a long run. Um, and I think the important thing is, um, is trusting that God goes with you and engaging with God every step of the way. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. No. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Well, it's like you mentioned earlier, just because the name of God wasn't mentioned in the story doesn't mean that he wasn't present there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and that's why this podcast is called becoming church because we do realize that God does not live. I mean, it's not old Testament time. Like he doesn't live in a box or at a tabernacle or, you know, that his presence is everywhere and that we can actually take that out into fishing or wherever we are. Mm -hmm you know? Yeah. And I think to, to carve out spaces for, um, for church, like church in the, um, like the concept, not the place, um, wherever you do go, whether you, you know, you're on your fishing trip and you set up, um, a camp with your friends and you engage in a conversation about, you know, the truth that you are seeking, 
like that's yeah. church or whether you, right. you know, exactly. you go for your long run and while you're running, you pray for the people that you love. And, you know, one of them that comes into your mind, then you, you know, you go home and give them a call and check in on them. Like that's, that's church too. Like you're taking exactly. God with you and you're, um, you know, this sort of Abrahamic idea of, um, God's people being meant to be a blessing to the entire world. Like that's what, that's, what's at the core of church, like whether we're in the building or not. Um, so I think regardless of what a like deconstructive process may look like, we also have the ability, yes, to have that God goes with us. And also that we at any given moment in any place have the opportunity and really the, the mandate to be a blessing to those around us. And then that's, that's when we're creating church. Yeah. Yeah. We can live out the love of Jesus without ever saying his name, if that's yeah. what mm-hmm. is required in the context or with the people that we're with. Yeah. All right. So one last question for you in all yeah. of your researching and, and writing the book of belonging, is there a woman or another maybe person in the Bible or a story that you've discovered and like gotten to know better in your research? Yeah. I would say the, the character that I have been the most fascinated by, and I'm still just enamored with is Hagar. Um, so most of us know Hagar from the story of Abraham and Sarah, um, that they, you know, God gives them this, this promise that they're going to have this great nation. And then it just doesn't happen. They don't have any kids. They don't have any kids. So finally, you know, Sarah seems to give up on the whole promise and says, all right, well, you know, here's my Egyptian slave sleep with her and have maybe through her, we will be blessed. Um, And then this like really terrible, tragic story, you know, it says that Sarah brutally oppresses Hagar when she does become pregnant. Um, And the verb that they use is the same verb that um, the, it's when they talk about the Egyptians brutally oppressing um, Hebrew slaves. Oh, wow. It's that same sort of like brutality. So Sarah treated Hagar with this brutality um, and she ends up running away and she encounters God. And it's this really, really beautiful story of, um, you know, this, this ultimate outsider, um, you know, God comes to her and she ends up being the first person, the only person in scripture to name God. And she says, you are the the God who sees me. And it's this really beautiful, um, story that sort of flips things on their head of as far as like the first becoming last and the last becoming first it's this really intriguing story but the more I've dug into the character of Hagar and learned um she represents so much to um black women and I have been reading a lot of womenist theology um and womenist midrash um Mm -hmm. and learning how much what she represents for them I feel like in in most of my reading and study, probably because I'm reading and study a lot of studying a lot of white theologians and white scholars. Um, Hagar, it's really interesting. She is so, she's described so differently by so many different scholars. Um, She's villainized in a lot of stories and she's the the hero in other stories. Um, And I think the thing that I've, I've taken away from the story of Hagar is that um, so much of it is about perspective and how so much of the way that scripture has been interpreted and taught is, is biased. Um, and and, and I, f- I find a lot of hope in that um, doing the work that I'm doing, but Hagar specifically, it's just, 
the story, um, I, I, I feel like I, I, she makes me speechless. I've just learned so Aww. much um, through, I think the way that she traditionally for me was sort of either just like a side character or um, a villain, but to see how she's a hero um, to women in the black community and to see how she's a hero to a lot of um, marginalized people, it really was very humbling for me to read and to learn and to think, well, I need to sort of rethink, first of all, so the, the sources that I'm reading, I need to, to broaden my, yeah. my research, but also like, man, I, I want to carry this understanding of perspective into every story that I read and, and to consider like whose story is not being told in this interpretation who's being overlooked um, and who's being held up as a hero when, when their actions are not entirely heroic. Like Sarah acts so terribly objectively. When I zoom out, I'm like, she is a terrible <laughs> woman. Like she is, yeah. um, but you know, Paul refers to her as like this model of, of, of female piety in the new Testament. So I think we sort of like work backwards and, and sort of treat her that way, no matter what, but the, these characters are so much more complex um, when you dig into the stories and the longest answer ever to your question was that's Hagar. okay if I could tell you one person to do some research on and learn more about it would be Hagar it's just fascinating to learn everything that's out there about her well and really what I heard at the heart of your answer is be aware of the lens that we're we're looking through that we're yeah. reading through that we're even that we're listening through and I think that applies to not only scripture, but even the voices in our lives in media, yeah. like so many things. I just love some of the questions that you asked of like, who is being villainized mm -hmm. and why, and through whose eyes and who yeah. is, who is being held up and why. And again, through whose eyes, I just think there is so much that all of us can learn about the world, about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where that unlearning and relearning can just be this beautiful thing to not necessarily say, what we were taught was wrong, but maybe it's just one perspective. Yeah. Maybe there's other ways to view it too. Yeah. For a, and for I, a bigger picture of who God is and what was actually going on, you know? Yes, exactly. That's what I was going to add is like, I feel like I always want to make sure that I, that I'm clear that at the, at the end of the day, it's not even about the characters. It's about who God is. That's my whole, yeah. my whole concept for this Bible is like, I want kids to learn who God is and who God says that they are. And I think the thing that was really hopeful for me in the whole Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, love triangle, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> is um, that God is so good to all three of them and so patient with all three of them, but also that God consistently, and I'm, I'm, st we're still working on the book. Um, I'm still writing it, but I'm at least in the old Testament, God is so consistently responsive to people who are unjustly oppressed. He'll always answer the call of someone who's being unjustly oppressed. Um, and to me, that was really hopeful was like, all these characters are screwing up in so many ways. <laughs> like, and, and, and that in a way is really encouraging. But I think the thing that was also encouraging was like, I think what, what holds true and what I needed to hold true in these stories. And I'm always so relieved when it does is that God is so good and that God is on the side of the marginalized and that God is on the side of the unjustly oppressed. And I think that that, um, there's a lot of hope there. 
Yeah. It's so beautiful. I cannot wait. I contributed to your Kickstarter. Is it still going? Is it still active? Nope. So we did 30 days. We raised more than we had hoped for. And now we're just diving in on the work. Awesome. And so if people want to get in, if they're listening to this conversation, they're like, okay, but I want one when it comes out, (laughs) where should we send them? We, um, we currently have a wait list for people who are hoping for copies of the book and for good reason, we're, I don't want to be cryptic, but we're, we're in some meetings about opportunities we have to make the book more accessible, um, geographically more accessible. Cause we only shipped to the U S at the time. Um, and, um, financially more accessible. We, okay. we felt a little uncomfortable during the Kickstarter saying like inclusivity and diversity, but having a $50 book I realize is not inclusive for everyone. Um, so we're talking about ways that we can make the book, um, a more accessible price point and more widely available. And while, while we take those meetings and figure those things out, we have a wait list on our website, thebookofbelonging.com. Awesome. Awesome. And where can people find you besides thebookofbelonging.com? Um, they can find me on Instagram. I'm Mariko, M-A-R-I-K-O Clark on Instagram. Awesome. awesome. And we will link it up in the show notes. This has been so delightful. So lovely talking to you. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks for chatting with me. Yes. All right, guys, thanks for listening to the Becoming Church podcast. You know where to find us, but just in case you don't, we'll link everything up on social media. Please make sure that you share this with a friend. If you know of parents who are looking for a new way to talk to their kids about the Bible, send them the book of belonging, send them this conversation with Mariko. Also rate and review the podcast. It just helps other people to find it as well. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Bye.